All right. Well, we're going to start. I'm delighted to see you. I hope everybody's having a good day. And uh, before we pray, we are in the ninth chapter of Luke. Verse 18 is where we'll start this afternoon. Um, Hopefully you saw the outline. Some of you may have chosen to copy it. And so the first section is verses 18 through 20 from Luke 9. Jesus asks, who am I? And that is a big question. And so it's a question everybody must answer at some point in life. Who is Jesus? So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the beauty of this day and thank you that this morning it was a little bit cooler and we're really, really grateful for that. We thank you for the privilege of coming together as uh, friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and studying your word here in the middle of the week. So bless us as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. We ask that you will speak to our hearts. We understand that this is more than a an intellectual pursuit. It, it is our allowing our hearts to listen for the still small voice of the Spirit saying to us, this is the way, walk in it. And We pray today that you will speak to us from your precious word, that you'll guide us, direct us, challenge us, convict us, and comfort us as only the Spirit can do. Thank you for all who have joined with us. Bless each one. Continued good health and strength, and certainly the joy that's ours of following Jesus. So we thank you now and ask your blessing upon us in Christ's name. Amen. I hope, yes. Um, I was just going to say really quickly, I just put the details in the chat, but uh, the Fitzhenrys are uh, inviting people to come by, drive by visitations uh, Friday night from 7.30 to 8.30 in their home. So if you need the address for that or anything, it's in the chat, but if you need it, you can get with me. But uh, they wanted to be sure the tune-up people knew for anyone that knew him. Thank you. I hate losing Jim. He's a good man, and uh, death was sudden, so... I know Betty would appreciate if you know them. Uh, she would appreciate um, a card or a call or whatever, email. I'm sure that would be great. All right. Um, ninth chapter, verse 18. Let's read it. And uh, just three verses to start with, 18, 19, 20, and then we'll, uh, we'll proceed from there. All right. Chapter 9, verse 18. Once Jesus was pay, praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? Now, you'll remember Matthew gives a little more detail on this than Luke does. So they are at Caesarea Philippi. Really, they've taken a retreat. Jesus has taken the disciples there in a retreat. And so in the middle of that retreat, as Jesus was praying, he asked the disciples a very important question. And, of course, you'll remember... um, a lot more discussion of that in Matthew, the 16th chapter. So I would encourage you to go there later and, and get more detail. So who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now you'll remember Matthew has it. You are Peter saying you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Now both of those are saying the same thing, uh, but here Luke puts it in abbreviated form, God's Messiah. So let's talk about these few verses for a few moments. Um, Jesus is really saying or asking his disciples. What's the word on the street? Or, since they've spent so much time around the Sea of Galilee, what's the word on the lake? Or the word around the lake? What are people saying? Now, you understand that there's a purpose in the question. And the purpose is not that Jesus doesn't have a clue what people are saying about him. He knows exactly what people are saying about him. But it is in order to engage his disciples in a critical conversation and to elicit from them their view of who Jesus is. 
And so as he asks, what are people saying? They give a variety of answers. John the Baptist, well, that would have required a resurrection, wouldn't it? Elijah, yes, and one of the prophets. But Jesus says, okay, that's what the street is saying, but what do you say? Who am I? And Peter gives the response. You know, Peter is often the first to answer. Sometimes his answers aren't very good. But this time, he is spot on. He gives a great response. You are God's Messiah, or you are the Christ, meaning Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, Let's translate that to 2020. What about you? What do you say? If someone were to stop you on the street today and say, hey, I'm doing a poll, or a friend were to ask you, who is Jesus? What would you say? Well, a good response would be, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is my savior and my Lord. He gave his life on the cross for my sin. He is is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. Um, That's a decision. That's that's a question everybody's got to answer. Question everyone has to answer. And so I trust everybody on this site today has answered that question and that you have publicly stated Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is my Savior and my Lord. Well, we go on to the next verses, 21 to 27, and we find Jesus talks to his disciples about the cost of following him, the cost of following Jesus. So let's let's read those verses, 21 to 27. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. That is the previous statement. Why? Why would he, why would he not want people to talk about it? Well, the time is not yet. There is much to happen before Jesus will ultimately be arrested, uh, crucified, and followed by the resurrection. And so at this point, Jesus just wants this to be a discussion among him and the disciples. But in verse 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now pause for a moment. Picture yourself as one of the 12 disciples. What would you think about that response? Do you think that was likely disturbing? Maybe confusing, maybe hurtful, not on a personal level, but hurtful in heart to think that this is what's going to happen to Jesus. Confusion? How, how can this be? No, 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 this can't happen. So think as if you were one of the disciples for a moment. And then watch Jesus proceed as he says in verse 23, then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoa, wait a minute. Just a, just a pause, just an aside. Did anybody tell you when you came to Christ that the Christian life would be easy? That it would, there would be nothing but laughter, joy and happiness and prosperity and blessing. I hope they didn't tell you that because you know by now that's not true. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand if you're going to be my follower, then you need to know there is a cost to following Jesus. Now, salvation is a free gift of God paid for by the blood of Jesus. But following him can be very costly. Do you see the difference? Following him can be very costly, costly discipleship. Whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. You get what he's saying? If you're looking um, for a life of comfort, and if you your decisions are whatever I need to do to make myself comfortable and prosperous and worldly happy, then you're going to be very disappointed. Whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus, meaning I'm willing, I will do whatever Jesus tells me to do. I'll follow him wherever he asks me to go. Whatever the price may be that he requires of me, I will follow him. Verse 25. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Contemplate that for a moment. Gain the whole world. Have you ever thought what it would be like to be uh, filthy rich? (laughs) Most of us aren't. So have you ever thought what would that be like? Things you could do, places you could go. Worldly pleasures, putting that ahead of everything else. Someone gains all that, but in the end, what have they gained? Nothing. What have they lost? Everything. Everything. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them as he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I truly tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom. Of God. So let, let, let's think about, let's think about these verses for a few moments. He says, don't tell. You don't understand all this yet. So just, this is our conversation where Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So he then tells them what it really means to be the Messiah and to follow the Messiah. You see, Jesus has not come to be a king who sits on a throne and runs out the Romans. Now, that's really what the people of Israel wanted, and understandably so. They were under the thumb of of Rome. They were slaves. They belonged to the Roman Empire. And the thought of a, of a Davidic-like king who would come and with the sword assume the throne in Jerusalem again and, and run the Romans out and establish the kingdom, man, that sounds wonderful. At least that's the thinking. But an, a, a proper interpretation of the Old Testament makes it clear that's not the kind of Messiah the Messiah was going to be. He's not a king who comes to sit on a throne and run the Romans out of the country. He's a king who comes to die. He's a king who comes to seek and to save those who are lost. So Jesus wants his disciples to understand that. Now, honestly, they never quite got it until the resurrection and the events following the resurrection. And that's not a criticism of the disciples. I guarantee you with my limited knowledge and my passions and pea brain, I would have been the same. I would have been looking for a physical triumph on a throne and we're set free and we can be a prosperous country once again. I'm sure I would have been that way. Jesus says, wait a minute. I want you to clearly understand. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to, if you're going to go after me, then you need to know who it is you're following, what I've come to do, and what's going to be expected of you, required of you, if you're going to follow me. I'm a king, yes, but I'm a king who has come to die. The cross is followed by the crown. He dies for us and we die with him. We die with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. 
So we die, we die to self, and, and we live for Christ. We live with Christ because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So we want to be clear what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that God owes us a cushy life or a stress-free life or a life without opposition or even persecution. But just remember, the Christian is also the only person who at any given moment can say the best is yet to be. You understand that? Isn't that great? I mean, no matter what you're going through, you may be right in the period now when, man, life hasn't been any better. Things are going well, and you're so thankful. You've got everything you need physically. Your health is at least decent, and you're sitting pretty good. And you would look around and say, you know what, this is, man, this is the best time in my life. And if that's true, then rejoice in this. The best is yet to be. Or it may be for some of you, this is the hardest time you've ever been through. Your health is not good. You're you're in pain. Perhaps monetarily, you're really not doing well right now. You're trying to just hold it together. Or maybe you are one who is in a situation where family or friends don't love Jesus and they are giving you a hard time because you're a follower of Christ. So this may be a challenging time for you, but understand that that's what Jesus said would happen. But remember, the best is yet to be. So this too will pass. This will not last forever. The best is yet to be. We are following Jesus. It's almost as if we're in a parade. Following behind Jesus. He is at the head of the parade carrying a cross. And we humbly follow behind him also carrying our own cross. Whatever that may mean for you or for me, denying self, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. Let, let You know, we've been going through Galatians. In Sunday, we've interrupted that for now, but let, let me read some, let me read three verses from Galatians. Galatians 2.20, you know this one. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a great verse. Chapter 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That no, The flesh no longer controls me. Christ controls me. And that's what we're able to say because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Then chapter 6, verse 14 in Galatians, may I never glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm a new creation. Old, the old is gone, the new has come. I'm transformed by Jesus Christ. I belong to him. That's our testimony when, when we know Jesus. So death in discipleship is the door to eternal life and the crown that will be ours. Now, do you know believers and I'm sure they, they aren't with us. They aren't on the screen today. But do you know believers who just seem to think that we deserve an easy life because we're followers of Christ? Have you ever encountered folks like that? It baffles them when they ever experience anything difficult, persecution or suffering. Or it's just baffling because they seem to feel that because I belong to Jesus, Everything's going to be perfect. Well, I see a lot of gray hair on the three screens in front of me, including my own. What little is there? And we've lived long enough to know. I mean, we know better than that, don't we? 
we're we're going to experience some of what everybody experiences sickness pain sorrow loss death of loved ones we all experience that we're not exempt and not only that but we experience sufferings that are unique to being a christian things that come with our willingness to stand for christ in the face of those who don't like what we stand for and will exert pressure to try to minimize you or even um, remove you from the scene. And so we know that we're going to experience difficulties of life. Would we want to gain the whole world and lose our soul? Absolutely not. That's a terrible bargain. So we follow Christ taking up our cross and following him, the joy of following Jesus. And we know that we will not, should not, will not ever be ashamed of Christ, no matter what, no matter what. Now in the 27th verse, he says, truly I tell you, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What I believe he is doing is pointing us to the next verses, pointing us to what is about to happen starting in verse 28. So verse 28, we see the verses on the transfiguration. Now, I know you get tired of me saying this, uh, but I've often said, man, would I love to see some of those events on, you know, video replay. You know, you watch sporting events and maybe your favorite team scores a spectacular touchdown and and you want to see it again and again, roll it again, show it again, man, look at that. Well, you know, I think about some of the events in the Bible and I think, man, I would love to see a video replay of that. I don't know whether that'll happen in heaven or not. We're going to be so enamored of Jesus and worshiping him and serving him that I don't know that we'll have any interest in replays. However, if we do, uh, I would like to see a replay of what comes next, and that's the transfiguration. Can you imagine the privilege of Peter, James, and John in being there and seeing exactly what we're going to read about right now? So let's read about the transfiguration, okay? Uh, look at verse 28 of uh, chapter 9, and let me start. About eight days after Jesus said this, so eight days after the preceding verses, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up into a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter, of course, Peter, Peter said, Master, it is good for us to be here. Now, I, want you, I, I love this. I love Peter's. I, love, I just love his openness. So he's, he's about to get corrected, but that's not the first nor the last time. What, what would you have said? Oh, can you imagine? I mean, he's absolutely blown away by what he's seeing. And maybe it didn't really call for him to say anything, but he thought he should say something. And so in a perhaps stuttering, stammering, master, it's good for us to be here. Now he wants to do something. Let us put up three shelters, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Yeah, okay. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. 
The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. All right. Now, maybe you understand why I'd love to see that on video, okay? Uh, They go to a mountain to pray. Jesus takes with him the three disciples, often called the inner circle, those who are closest to him, Peter, John, James. Then Jesus on the mountain is changed in appearance. I don't see this transformation as if someone were shining a spotlight on Jesus as if he were an actor in a play and someone puts the spotlight on him. This is a transformation, a transfiguration that comes literally from the inside. This change in appearance comes from within, from inside out. And Moses and Elijah appear with him. And the disciples knew exactly who they were by the conversation that Jesus had. They they just knew this is Elijah, Moses. And Elijah and Moses spoke with Jesus about what? About what is going to happen soon. In Jerusalem, his arrest and his crucifixion. Now, Peter, John, and James were sleepy, but when they opened their eyes, something stirring and woke them up. They opened their eyes and they look and they see the glory of Jesus and there with him, Elijah and Moses. What an incredible moment it must have been. You know they were scared, the three. But Peter feels the need to speak. And what is he, what's his mistake here? Other than speaking, what's his mistake? He is putting on an equal level Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I want, we let, we want to build three tabernacles. Uh, we want to build one for Moses and Elijah, and yeah, we'll build one for you too, Jesus. We're going to build, we're going to build three tabernacles in honor of the three of you and this this occasion. Uh, well, they're not equal, and so the cloud descends. If you're on top of a mountain and a cloud descends upon you, you're probably going to be afraid, and they were. And the voice of God himself speaks from the cloud and clarifies exactly who is who. And he says, this is my son. There is no one like him, including Moses and Elijah. There is no one like him. Listen to him. He has the final word. On life and death, he has the words of life themselves. Listen to him, see the Gospels, and listen to him alone. Now, uh, how how are you and I going to get to know Jesus? Sometimes folks will become believers say, how do I grow? What do I do? Well, do the same thing that God said to James, Peter, and, uh, and John. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. The father testifies of his son. So we listen to Jesus. And we grow in our fellowship of him. So they talk about what is about to happen in Jerusalem. And not every word. In fact, we have very little of the dialogue between Jesus and Elijah and, and Moses. Very little of the dialogue. But what we do have is the subject matter of their conversation. And the subject matter of their conversation is, you're on your way to Jerusalem, and you will be arrested, crucified, beaten, abused, and crucified. Now, what do you think, what do you think Elijah and Moses were saying? Um, You know, honestly, I don't want to pretend to know because I don't, but I think there's a good possibility that Moses and Elijah were offering encouraging words to Jesus. 
Um, now, don't be offended by that by saying, well, he's, he's son of God. He didn't need any words of encouragement. Well, wait a minute. He's fully God, yes, but he's also fully man. So let me take you forward a little bit to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. And do you remember the agonizing in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the part of Jesus and, and what part of his conversation was in his prayer? Father, is there any other way? And, of course, he knew the answer to that question. No, there isn't. So I'm perfectly comfortable with Moses and Elijah offering words of encouragement uh, to Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus sets his face like flint for Jerusalem and will will not be deterred in his journey that will take him to the cross. Now, do you love that passage? That's an incredible passage of scripture, the transfiguration. Now, let's, let's keep on going. You know, somebody the other day, I knew the question would come after I announced my retirement. The question came, are we going to finish Luke by the time you walk off? All right, next chat. Oh, I guess you want me to answer that question, don't you? We're sure going to give it our best. That's for sure. All right, so let's look at Luke 9:37, the demon-possessed boy. All right, here we go. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher! I beg you to come and look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Then Jesus replies, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. That's pretty hard words, isn't it? But is it not true? Has he not said over and over and over again, you've come out to see me to see a miracle. And so now watch what he does as he comments to those who are there. And then as he does what only Jesus can do, look at verse 42. Even while the boy was coming, his father's bringing him, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. You know, Maybe this does, maybe, maybe you've never dealt with this, but we, we've, a lot of us here on the screen have been Christians a long time. We've read the Bible and many times and we've read these stories many times. You know, what concerns me is when we read a story like this and we stifle a yawn and move on to the next story. Don't ever do that. Do you see the wonder, the incredible wonder and awe and majesty in every story of the miraculous, including this one? Can you imagine the fear that was in the heart of the people as they saw this young boy thrown to the ground by the demon that was inside of him and how the boy foamed at the mouth and it's scary and it's frightening and is he going to die? What's going to happen? And his dad is terrified and horrified. And then Jesus does what only he can do. So the understatement of the year is in verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. I'll say they were absolutely amazed at the power of Jesus. So put your arms around these stories of the miraculous and let it speak to your heart about the power of Jesus. Now, is God still in the miracle business? Yes, he is. 
God can do what God wants to do. But remember, there is a difference between now and 2,000 years ago. We have the completed scripture, the testimony and the witness of the Holy Spirit to the majesty of Jesus. And so we think often, we why doesn't Jesus do these same kinds of miracles today? Well, he does. But we have the word of God, the written word of God to guide us and point us and direct us and others to Jesus. But God is still at work in this world doing incredible and wonderful things. You know what I think the problem with a lot of sophisticated Westerners? We see God do great things and we don't give him the glory. We just think, oh, well, how about that? We don't even attribute it to him. I've been, you know, this blooming coronavirus, man, are we ready to get rid of this thing? It's altered our lives. And uh, not to mention the sickness and death that it brings. But I, my wife and I pray every morning and every night for an end to this virus. And our pledge to him on our part has been when it happens, however it happens, we're going to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. When will it happen and how will it happen? I don't know the answer to that yet, but I believe with all my heart it will. Some have said it'll be a vaccine. Okay. Uh, I guarantee you man's not going to find a vaccine without God prompting and moving and, uh, and making it happen. And so the power, the honor, and the glory are not going to go to researchers in a lab on our part. The glory and the honor is going to go to God. You know, I could chase some rabbits, but I'm not going to do that. Let, let's, let's, let's think about these verses. The father and his boy. This is a terrible tragedy. How did this happen? We, we don't, we don't know. How did this demon come to live inside this boy? We don't know. Is there some sense in which his father dabbled in the demonic and, and brought this on his household? We don't know. Did God allow it to happen so that he could be glorified on this occasion? That's a possibility. We don't know, but it happened. And now God's going to demonstrate clearly his power through his son, Jesus. The disciples had tried and failed from a lack of faith. Jesus acts and the audience is amazed. He casts out the demon, gives the boy back to his father, in what had to be a very tender moment, if, if you can picture this father receiving his son back into his arms. Now, Jesus pulls the disciples aside and uh, he said, let's, let's have a conversation, guys, about this. So I want to keep going. Verse, the second part of verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, so here's the teaching moment. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Does that puzzle you? Did you, did, did you and the, did, did the disciples think, okay, Jesus is going to give us a formula by which we can do this? They've just seen an incredible miracle, and yet he takes the teaching moment and transitions it to say, listen carefully, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's what's going to happen soon. Verse 45, they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They're so awed by his words and the majesty of the moment that their tongues are tied and they don't even ask Jesus any questions about it. Now, it will all become clear soon enough, but right now it isn't. Now, let, let me make it clear. The arrest of Jesus and his crucifixion should not have caught the disciples unaware. It did, but it shouldn't have. Why shouldn't it? Because he had numerous times told them what was going to happen. For instance, in this chapter alone, not to mention other chapters, 
Go back to verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Uh, Now, let that sink in a minute. Then go post-resurrection. Remember when the women came back from the tomb and said, he's not there, he's, he's, he's risen. And what was the response they received? No, I can't be. Astonished they were. And so, of course, Peter and John ran off to the tomb. But Jesus had said, I will be crucified and I will be raised to life again. Now, again, don't see me as a critic of the disciples or hypercritic of the disciples. I know my own denseness of mind and heart to things spiritual, and I know my own sin nature, and I'm convinced that I would not have been the exception to the rule. If I'd been one of the 12, I would have said, no, you got to be kidding, even though Jesus had said it again and again. Do we need more proof? Yes. Let's go to verse 31. They spoke about his departure on Mount of Transfiguration, which was about to bring fulfillment in Jerusalem. And they weren't talking about getting on a train and going cross-country. They were talking about a crucifixion, his departure. That's verse 31. Then in verse 44, again, this passage, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus had said this repeatedly. Now, for us, for us, Listen to Christ's words, be led by the Holy Spirit, and pray for wisdom. What book of the Bible, in which book of the Bible does it say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God for it, and God will give it to you? It's as direct a promise as as you can find anywhere in Scripture. What book is it? James. Yeah, I know. You're muted, so I know some of you were answering. It's a book of James. We listen to Christ's words. We're led by the Spirit. We pray for wisdom. And so we find an astonishing miracle. And then Jesus, with a teaching moment, here is what is coming to his disciples. Okay, now we move on to verse 46. And I want to give you from this passage, or the Scripture gives us, I'm just elaborating, four words four words that describe a Christian. And you'll find those four words in this text. So let's see if we can spot them. Verse 46 through the end of uh, verse 60 to the end of the chapter. Here we go. An argument started among the disciples. No, argument is not one of the words that should describe a Christian. Okay. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. So here is an illustration, a living, breathing illustration that addresses what they had been talking about among themselves. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you among you all, who is the greatest. I wonder if they blushed with embarrassment. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's the, the, the words, his face was set like flint, come from here. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. So Samaritans and Jews. We'll talk about that really briefly. You're already pretty familiar with that. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Sons of thunder. 
But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. All right, let's, here's the first of the four words that describe a Christian. And they are in verses 46 to 48, and the word is humility. Humility. Pride and Christ follower don't go together. Pride and discipleship would be oxymorons, that they don't go together. Now, there's an amazing argument taking place among the disciples Who's the great, I mean, this is, this is childish, which is exactly why Jesus sets a child before them. Their, their argument is childish and ridiculous. So Jesus wants to teach them a lesson that in following him, we are to live in humility and exemplify humility before others. He turns worldly thinking upside down. Humility describes the Christian. A lot of books today written about um, how to exceed, how to excel, how to be great, how to get rich. Um, and, and you'll have a hard time finding in the book, at least in a positive light, the word humility or humble. Likely won't find it. But Jesus takes the worldly way of thinking and turns it upside down and says humility marks the Christ follower. The messenger is always lower than the message. We as messengers are subservient to the message. And the main thing is not the giver of the message, us, but the God that is in the message. That's the main thing. So, oh my goodness, where did the time go? Let me, let me hurry. Um, boast in the Lord, not yourself. Paul said that. I, I, I don't glory in myself. I glory in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So humility is the first word that marks a believer. Um, I'm going to give you the second word, and then we'll have to get numbers three and four next week. Here's the second word, mercy. Mercy. Samaritans, Jews, Samaritan village, they hate each other. They despise each other. The Samaritans don't listen. They don't want to listen. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. They want to have nothing to do with him. So Jesus moves on. But before they move on, James and John say, let's bring down thunder and lightning and wipe them out. Let's kill them, Jesus. So what does Jesus say? No, no, we are not going to do that. It it, it is a rebuke, and Jesus would exemplify what rather than rather than um, bringing destruction. He talks about the importance of being gracious and merciful as Christ followers. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, I skipped a word. So I got to go back and get number three, uh, number two. Mercy was number three. So we're already ahead of the game. Let me go back to number two. I skipped it in my note. Cooperation marks a Christian. What? Yep. Verses 49 and 50. John says, hey, there's somebody out here driving out demons in your name. And I tried to get him to stop because he's not one of us. Uh, he's not a Baptist, or he's not a whatever. He's not a, a a Bible church person, or he's not a Presbyterian, or he's not a Methodist, or blah, 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 blah. So he's not one of us. 
Jesus says, he's doing the work of God. Cooperate. Join with them. Doesn't have to be part of our clique. Join with those. So today, we cooperate with other believers, even though we may have some disagreements about the non-essentials. We agree on the essentials. Where, where we agree on the essentials, then we cooperate and work together to bring glory to God. So we'll try to elaborate a little bit more on this next week, but here are the first three words, humility, cooperation, and, and, and mercy. Now, let me close out the word mercy. We warn of judgment. We warn of the judgment that is to come, but we don't call it down. It's not our job. We don't call it down. We just simply warn of the judgment to come. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you the fourth word with no elaboration. The fourth word is sacrifice. So that's where we'll start next week in Four words that are a description of a Christian. Sacrifice. Okay. Well, let me write right here. You know, if I don't write it down, I'll get on the screen next week and I'll say, where did we leave off? So I've got to write it down. Today's the 19th. Next week's 26th. So that's where we'll start next time. Thank you for coming. I love seeing you. And uh, we'll hang around a little bit if you want to talk. You can stay on as long as you want to. Well, not necessarily. Uh, Vicky, Vicky will not allow you to stay on till three o'clock. That's just not acceptable. But stay on a little while if you want to. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Uh, invite folks to come on. I know it's different from bringing them to the gym, but uh, if you got friends, uh, let them let Vicky know, and she can send out the invitation, same one you get. And maybe they'd want to join us next time. And don't think we've forgotten about ever getting back together. We still want to do that and will when we feel like it. it's safe to do so. But that's not yet. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. And I pray that our lives today will cause others to think about Jesus. We love you and adore you. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.